Welcome everybody to another week of Legal Tech Week, uh, where we uh, bring together a panel of journalists and bloggers and, and others to uh, hash out the top news in legal tech and innovation for the week. I am Bob Ambrogi. I uh, write the blog Lost Sites and also have the podcast Law Next. And uh, got an almost full house today, still missing a couple. Well, actually, where's Steve? Steve's supposed to be joining us, wasn't he? Was Steve going to be here? Steve Embry, I don't know where Steve is. Yeah, he, he had an ABA meeting. So oh, that's he right. He was going to join us after he got out of his ABA meeting. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we do have uh, those who you see here. So uh, let's go around and introduce ourselves. Uh, Vic. Victoria, you want to start us off? Sure. Hey, everybody. My name is Victoria Hutchins. I'm a reporter for ALM, where I write mostly for legal tech news about the legal tech industry, data privacy, and, and how technology is impacting the business and practice of law. And I'm based in Philadelphia. And from Victoria to Victor. Well, that was a movie, right, Victor, Victor Victoria? Victor Victoria. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, hi, everyone. My name is Victor Lee. I am an assistant managing editor for the ABA Journal covering the business of law. And that other great movie, Victor to Molly. Victor Molly. <laughs> Molly McDonough. I'm a, a media strategist and consultant based in the Chicago area. Joe Patrice. I, I feel bad. I, I was absolutely going to make the Victor Victoria joke. And now like that, that, that all got, I got staked on that one. All right. Uh, I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law and uh, Thinking Like a Lawyer podcast. And um, I think, I think uh, some organizations most wanted list, uh, not the FBI. It, it begins with an I though. I don't know. Um, <laughs> they have a conference coming up, I guess. <laughs> and last but not least, uh, Nikki Black. I'm Nikki Black. I am the legal technology evangelist with my case law practice management software. And I write legal technology columns and or articles for on a regular basis for ABA Journal Above the Law um, Daily Record and um, weekly post on the my case blog. Those are chimes in the background. I'll mute myself. I was just going to say, is there music somewhere? <laughs> or did I have too many beers at lunch or something? Um, and yeah, so I think Steve is going to join us. Caroline Hill was going to join us, just had to cancel in a short uh, notice for something that came up. And Zach is off. Uh, I don't know where Zach is, but he's not here this week. Um, and uh, boy, I had, I had a crazy week in which I almost did no blogging about anything. So I have very little to contribute this week. But fortunately, our panelists have come up with a, a lot of good stuff to talk about. And actually, it's interesting because a lot of the topics that people have suggested are all focused on maybe the, the innovation part of the equation or the way things are changing uh, in uh, very rapidly in a lot of ways. Um, uh, and But before we get to any of that, we, we, we've been kind of talking about doing a, a weekly check-in on, on ILTA as it's coming up soon. And uh, some of us will be there. Uh, some of us may be on the fence about whether to be there and uh, some of us won't be there. But uh, Joe, what's the latest from, uh, from your end? Yeah. Um, and I said it wrong earlier. I guess I'm on ILTA's least wanted list. Uh, so uh, those of us who uh, are going to ILTA but may not have uh, press credentials or anything mm -hmm. like that, uh, we have secured the Moria suite in the Mandalay Bay to hold some interviews uh, for those of us who can't necessarily get to the floor. So if you're interested in scheduling some time to talk to me, at least, uh, you should uh, let me know uh, and we'll get you to the calendar and you can sign up for some times. Uh, and also as an added treat, 
if you sign up with some times for me, you should also loop around and say, hey, that's the time I'm meeting with Joe. Does anybody else want to be there? And other folks, uh, including some people on this show, might uh, show up too. And we could, you know, we could make your for those of you who are in the PR world, we can make your clients only give their spiel once, uh, potentially, which uh, would save everybody a little bit of time. Right. So we, we're all going to have access. All of us are going to be there. Uh, and probably even if you're not going to be there, you can have access to it. But we're going to have access to the calendar. And there's like a link somewhere that people can just click on and go yeah, to the calendar. Yeah, I'm going to go that grab or... that link. I'll um, grab that link down, put it in the chat for people watching live. Um, all right, there it is. So yeah, so you can you can go into here and host and panelists. No, I need to go to everyone. Um, you can hop into this thing and uh, it will, when you jump to the right days, it'll give you an opportunity to sign up for things. One quirk of it is it appears as though it, it operates in whatever time zone you're in. So for instance, on the East Coast, it'll say that the slot is at 6 p.m. Just remember that means it's 3 p.m. Vegas. So you're not signing up to meet with us at nine at night you're well whatever so just remember that and sign up for things and when you do claim a time it'll pop up on my calendar that you're there uh and then we can work from there to make sure other folks are not double booked at that time and maybe we can all consolidate and do meetings as a group kind of meet the press style yeah it'll be interesting if the calendar's working for me pacific time actually I, I, either that or you're scheduling Ooh. meetings at like six o'clock in the morning and i hope you're not doing that because i ain't gonna be there if you do I'm not. No, it's weird. So I told it to be Pacific. And then Zach said when he looked at it, it was all Eastern. And then when I looked, it was Eastern again. So I moved it, but whatever. Yeah. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Anyway, so I mean, we can continue to get closer to Ilta. I, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, I mean, people are interested in this because it's the first, the first hybrid event, the first event in which there will, in, uh, in theory, be a physical component to it. Uh, whether that actually happens, I think. Uh, remains to be seen. I've talked to, I've talked to some people who have said they are on the fence about going, even though they had planned to go, uh, as things continue to heat up with, uh, the Delta variant and the situation in, in Las Vegas. Uh, I've heard, you know, I haven't heard anybody, everybody seems to be hearing the same number of about 275 registrants. I don't know if it's moved up at all off of that. I haven't heard anything. Uh, and, uh, a hundred or so vendors with, you know, maybe a couple of people, each vendor coming there. So, uh, I, you know, the the uh, the numbers that ILTA are putting out there is that they're expecting as many as a thousand people. Uh, I think that's probably generous given the way it's all working out. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how it goes, but uh, we'll find out soon. I can think of one way they could have bumped their numbers a little bit. <laughs> could have could have given uh, yeah. some more of us access. Right, exactly. Bring have have some press cover it. What a crazy idea! Um, yeah. Well, um, all right. Well, let's get to some of today's stories. Um, and we, there's a there's a so as I said there's kind of a, a, several things that are kind of a common theme. But uh, you know, just as a sign of the times, maybe we ought to start, Victor, with, with this the story that you picked out this week, uh, which wasn't even out of the ABA Journal. How generous of you! But it's it's kind of an interesting indication of where we are right now. Yeah, I thought it was just really interesting, and I, you know, I credit ALM for doing this. Just, uh, you know, they uh, published a uh, a vaccine, a mandatory vaccine tracker for firms that, uh, and law firms that are mandating, um, you know, its lawyers or employees or whatever partners to get to have to to be to be fully vaccinated before they return to the office. And uh, I thought it was interesting. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, you know, we know just watching the um, 
watching the uh, the um, the legal industry, especially particularly the AMLA firms. You know, typically, you know, it's a very much it's very much a follow the leader kind of thing. So who knows if like this means that almost all the firms are going to do the same thing now. I mean, I think they only, you know, they they're, they're keeping a running tally going on. And I'll I'll put the link in the chat, but um, it's one of those things where um, you know, sometimes oh, yeah, I gotta, sorry, they they change the interface on this chat thing, so I gotta think about how I do this. Okay, yeah, so um. It's interesting that like, uh, you know, you see a lot of like the usual suspects firms that are usually more press savvy at who are, you know, tend to be a little more open about their things, about their policies and whatnot, you know, that are on this, that are on this, that are on this list, but then also maybe a few firms that maybe, uh, you know, are, uh, and, and then some firms that, that are not on the list, you know, maybe the, you know, like they tend to be a little more secretive and a little more, you know, less press, less press friendly and whatnot. So it is interesting to see which firms have have announced and which firms haven't. But um, you know, it's also possible that some firms just don't know what to do. I mean, things are changing so quickly as just we're seeing with the Delta variant and just with these conferences and whatnot. It's just things are such in flux and so changing so quickly that you know what's what 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 would maybe look like a great idea like a month ago or even two months ago is now probably not a good idea. And I I almost wonder what's going to happen for 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 the ABA like if like, like if we're going to have to start mandating um, you know vaccines. So. Yeah, it'll be interesting to, to, to see how far this goes, to see how to see how uh, widespread it, how, how widespread it is. If all the other firms follow suit, and there'll be people that challenge it, and it'll be interesting to see to see what you know how that how that shakes out as well. Yeah. What does it actually mean to have a vaccine mandate? I mean, what happens if somebody is not vaccinated? Well, that's actually, I was going to jump in and say the most interesting thing about the vaccine mandates is we had seen some people recommend vaccines, uh, just like, please get them. And then, you know, most people did, but not everyone, because we can't have nice things. So now they're turning to these mandates. And most of the mandates have been toothless for a while, uh, people just saying you have to do it or else, and it was never clear. But I think it was Davis Polk who kind of started the trend. They came out and said, we are shutting off your card access to the building. Uh, unless you have registered with us as vaccinated. Uh, so that's the first time I heard that there was teeth to this. And I've seen since then Paul Weiss and I think, I think Weil maybe uh, also followed up with, you know what, that sounds like a great idea. We're also turning off card access. So that's the mechanism right now. But if you can't get into the building, what happens to your job? I mean, does that mean you're out of a job or does that just mean, sorry, you have to continue working from home, which for a lot of people so would be a wonderful thing. Yeah. So I will say Gibson Dunn at the bottom of their memo says, if you can't get it, you have to continue working from home. And then had a sentence that was not getting a vaccine will not be a excuse for remote working. So they'll say, you know, you can work from home until you get it. But they very heavily implied you will not have a job for long. Really interesting. Any other thoughts on that? Um. So uh, that that kind of among among the things we we want to talk about today, uh, Nikki, you wrote about this uh, new uh, report that just came out from the ABA that that kind of uh, that's sort of a segue into it because one of the things it looks at is lawyers uh, who uh, did work from home uh, or who are now working from home or now going back to the office. So what, what can you tell us about that? Well, so it was, I thought it was really interesting because um, it's the ABA profile of the profession and I write about it every year, but typically it tends to mostly just cover um, demographics and sort of the rural gap, you know, in terms of lawyers. And this year, it, um, understand it was so included a whole section on the pandemic and also a lot on lawyer stress levels because the pandemic clearly 
stress the lawyers out just like it stressed everyone else out. And the return to the office also causes a lot of anxiety for people. So um, the, let me get the link. Uh, I wrote about it for the My Case blog. I also wrote um, another, about some other statistics on the, on Above the Law to the My Case blog post. That's what I what had been published when I put stuff into our chart in terms of what we were gonna talk about. Um, but some of the stuff that I thought was most interesting was, first of all, that when it came to keeping their work lives separate from um, homework, uh, you know, uh, from the home. And also when it came to the return to the office, solo lawyers and smaller firm lawyers tended to be a little more able to cope during COVID and also um, had less anxiety about going back to the office. And it makes a lot of sense um, in some ways because they're used to not working with as many people. So they're sort of used to working on their own a little more. So, um, and they probably work for more places just because you have more flexibility as a um, solo or small firm attorney. And then in terms of the return to the office, they probably have a lot more control over that than they, the large firm attorneys. So I thought that was just interesting that the solo and small firm attorneys just seem to cope a little bit better, at least in terms of that type of thing. And then the other thing that I thought was interesting was, um, I think, you know, the pandemic has made everyone reassess their lives. So you see all the articles about people quitting and moving on to another job or, um, but they also ask about retirement. And when people are close to retirement age and they reassess their lives because of the pandemic, it's interesting to see the stats on that. So they said that um, for older lawyers, which they defined as 62 and up, 33% said it has significantly affected their retirement plans, the pandemic debt. So over half reported they decided to delay retirement, 53%. But then 47% said they'd hastened their retirement because of the pandemic. So I just thought that was super interesting. I think this, the effects of the pandemic are going to be super, sorry, there's a bug that seems to have taken an interest in me while I was speaking. Um, but they're super, it's just, I think the effects are going to be long-term. It'll be really interesting to see both in the legal profession and elsewhere what those long-term effects really are now that the Delta variant is picking up and I think we're in, we're in this for the long haul. Um, the longer the that's, pandemic goes on, the longer a lot of these changes may end up becoming permanent too. I, so it'll be interesting to see. But the, I thought those statistics, especially the ones relating to the pandemic were some of the most interesting ones in that report. But the report overall has a ton of really interesting data, including the stress stuff. Yeah. Lawyers are stressed out. The pandemic certainly just exacerbated that, so, unfortunately. One of the things that jumped out at me about that was that a quarter, almost a quarter of lawyers, or 22%, I think it was, said they never worked remotely during the pandemic, never worked from home. I mean, that struck, I mean, even though it, it, it's, a, it, it's a low number in terms of the overall numbers, I was surprised it was that high of people who never worked remotely. Did it, did it, did it tell you anything about who those people were? I mean, I have to assume they were mostly solos or something going into a local office um but uh, that's my guess i'd have to check but i know some lawyers that are from small firms where um they would have the receptionist and just them like the lawyers would kind of um rotate into the office yeah. um so or in solos obviously they can work from anywhere right yeah i i heard from a yeah. lot of lawyers especially on ari kaplan's uh, lunch that a lot of firms especially in the south um and in uh, more rural parts of the country never closed or they came up with some type of rotation. Um, so de-densifying and a rotation and the offices never completely closed. So I, I think it's, 
at least I, I heard that a lot in Florida, a lot of legal offices didn't close and that's what the fourth largest legal state. So yeah. yeah like we did, we did a story about like, uh, there were a couple of states where they declared legal services to be like an emergency, um, you know, like, like well, whatever, whatever it was the, um, uh, a necessary or emergency thing or whatever. Emergency so that, workers so, yeah, whatever, so, yeah. So they were exempt from, they, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't subject to like the closures and the, the shutdown, the shutdown rules and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, no, I can understand that. I mean, I've actually been coming in my office for most of the pandemic, but my office is like just me and I just walk in here and it's, <laughs> there's nobody else here for the most part. There's a couple of other, you know, professionals in a suite here and some of them have come in, some haven't, but we never, we don't even see each other for the most part. So uh, it, it's a different kind of a situation, but yeah, that's, that was really interesting. I haven't had, it's another one I haven't had a chance to, to fully dive into the uh, ABA State of the Profession Report. It's always a good read, a really interesting read. Uh, was it was it last year where they that report really focused in on the legal deserts uh, in the U.S. or maybe it was two years ago, which was also a really fascinating, yeah. uh, a fascinating issue because you know when, when you think about access to justice, you tend to think about it more along economic lines or or uh, even racial lines or class lines, but uh, the extent to which it's a geographic issue uh, is, is really interesting, um, and uh, they did a good job of talking about that too. So always good. Yeah. I thought um, the article about this year's report was interesting, and especially when they mentioned about people of color and just like the stress that they were feeling while working remotely. And it kind of reminded me of one of my colleagues, um, I think for the American lawyer, he wrote about these diversity inclusion efforts that we saw some law firms like announce and roll out last year during um, when we were working remotely and people were talking about racial injustice and inequality. And she was saying those efforts like working remotely actually kind of helps the hiring they're saying of diverse attorneys because you can give them that flexibility of not being in an office but still being employed by a law firm. But some people said just kind of like the retention and the promotion of those diverse attorney, attorneys may suffer in a remote environment because they're not getting those informal like partnerships, camaraderie and that type of like business development. And they were saying that could kind of hinder um, people of color, minority um, lawyers in the profession. So it's kind of interesting and just kind of like how are law firms trying to deal with that? Like it's going to take them being really proactive. I don't know if you're hearing too many law firms like unnecessarily announcing those efforts, but it's something that I, I would assume they all know they need to take care of. But it would kind of be interesting to see like what Nikki was saying earlier, is that going to be one of the long term impacts of working remotely? You know, and that's, that issue actually is really interesting because it, on quasi-related, it reminds me of, was it the New York Times, I think, who did that article on Paul Weiss's uh, partnership uh, situation and diversity uh, a, couple, a couple years ago, which I thought was, they were a little unduly harsh. I think that Paul Weiss was not nearly, uh, it, whatever, they, they were a little harsh, but I, I thought they raised some interesting points in that article, I'll see if I can find it, that were about about that question of is in-person mentorship actually helpful or not, or does these things sometimes go off the rails when in-person? It was really interesting because uh, they were talking about how the in-person mentorship efforts sometimes can 
almost feel more exclusive than inclusive. It was it was interesting. Let's yeah, see if I can. I think find I it. remember that um, because I remember yeah. they said the very few non equity well equity partners that are are black they get tasked with all like the black um, and it's not yeah. like a formally like but like the black associates yeah. say like hey I can go to you and kind of like you can help me a mentor and they're just like I have to do I have to make sure that I'm building my book of business and I just don't necessarily yeah. have time. And then I don't know if they said explicitly like maybe they don't feel comfortable going to their non-black partners, but it's just kind of like they feel like they don't have anyone to guide them. And yeah. then they just figure like, okay, I'll just like um do a few years and I have to go somewhere else. So yeah, I remember that article. Yeah, yeah. No, it it was it was very interesting. Yeah, I put it in the chat, but I think that's the one. Yeah. And it was talking about how like Ted Wells is stretched too thin, which yeah. means people can't do that. And which means, yeah, it was really, really interesting. Well, uh, speaking of mentoring young lawyers, one of the skills that uh, young lawyers have to have these days is legal technology. And there's a question of how do we assess the legal technology skills of those who are just coming in to be lawyers? And Joe, you've got something on that this week. In you honor of in honor of the Olympics. I, yeah, <laughs> in honor of the Olympics, that was a perfect 10 segue. Congratulations, everybody. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, yeah, so Victor went outside of his publication. I'll go outside of mine. Uh, this is a Bloomberg piece that I was reading, and I will grab it now and put it in the chat. Uh, Bloomberg piece that I thought was interesting about, we've already had the situation arise where state bars say that, you know, you've got to be somewhat savvy in tech and understand tech uh, because it is an important part of this industry now. The question is, well, if that's what we're doing at the, you know, at the CLE level, should we be making young lawyers do that? And there was a question of maybe we should put that on the bar exam. Uh, my feeling is that we shouldn't have a bar exam, period. So I kind of am not a fan. Uh, but the article is actually really good. It talks about the idea that if this is going to be such a big part of a young lawyer's whole career, they should be tested on it uh, to prove minimum competency, if that's really the word we think the bar exam uh, words the bar exam actually meets. Um, but then the flip side of it, and they talked to a bunch of folks, uh, one of them is Casey Flaherty, uh, who talked about like, I don't understand how you would even test that because it moves too fast. Uh, there's too much development going on. Uh, there was a lot of consensus that maybe this really is something that just should be left to CLEs. Mm -hmm. Or, and I, and I also think this was Casey's point, which is mine, which is maybe instead of trying to push more things into this stupid exam, we force law schools to actually have an integrated teaching style that gets at it. Uh, we too often push accountability for law schools to cover certain skills onto bar exams to test it on the back end. Uh, and we need to stop doing that. Uh, if it's, it's, bet, it's more likely to sink in with people if we have a rigorous process of iterative learning over the course of three years than if we say, jam this in and and choose D and C enough and you'll be a lawyer. Uh, and so it was, it, but it was a really interesting series of questions of maybe this would help, maybe it wouldn't, maybe this is more valuable than some other questions they have on the bar exam and we could take that time and turn it toward tech. Uh, but ultimately I very much came out on the side of it strengthening my, Shocking. Uh, it came out strengthening my already held belief that the answer is not a bar exam, but better law schools. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. I mean, I tend to agree with your first point of what the heck does the bar is the bar exam for in the first place. And I don't really think it measures anything having to do with competency to practice law in any way, shape or form. Uh, I don't see how you could 
test for tech competency in, in any real way. And, and the problem is tech competency isn't a, isn't a single thing, like knowing the statute of limitations in the state of New York or something. It's, it's, a, it's a, a way of thinking about uh, problems. And so, I don't know, maybe you could have an exam question. It was kind of interesting that, that Casey Flaherty, who's got the ProCertus legal uh, uh, tech competency uh, program, would say it's changing too fast to be tested because ProCertus is still basically tasting, testing on like basic, you know, Microsoft Word and Excel skills from 20 years ago. Uh, and I don't think they're really testing on cutting edge technology in any way. But yeah, I, I go for it. I mean, it's really up to law schools. Uh, I, I had a, a one of my favorite uh, interviews on my podcast recently was a, this uh, uh, woman, April Dawson, who's at North Carolina Central University School of Law, uh, where she uh, she talked at ABA Tech Show last year about teaching tech in law schools and how to do it effectively, and also how to teach faculty to use tech and understand tech and use it as part of the overall teaching environment. So it's not just teaching tech, it's immersing people in tech as part of their education so that that's what it will be like, you know, when you uh, so you'll know what it's like when you get out into practice, but uh, really interesting. Well, here's a curveball that I <laughs> thought of. What if, um, what if what the nature of the testing, not that I like testing, but whatever, devil's advocate. I think if there was a way to test it, what if the nature of the testing was about the ethics of it? Uh, understanding when it is and is not acceptable to turn things over to a vendor or turn things over to an AI or whatever. Like, I think being up on those decisions might be valuable and testable. Uh, but yeah, I don't I, think you could test the way of thinking. No, I think you're right. I, that's, you're completely onto something with it in terms of kind of what, what it is you need to know to keep your client, to keep your business and your client's businesses safe um, through your, through your transactions. That's the kind of, you know, what kind of security you need to have. I mean, we talk all the time about there's still no, most lawyers I know still don't use portals. They don't use encrypted email. I have to, I've literally introduced my own lawyer to um, encrypted email um, because she was sending really sensitive documents via email. And I'm like, nope, nope, please no, <laughs> let's not do this. Um, and, you know, her only alternative was for me to drop things off in person. And so, you know, and I'm, I will not use her again. Like, that's just not going to happen. Um, so, but I wish I had known earlier on, and I pro it's going to be a screening question going forward about, you know, how you communicate, you know, what, what it is, but that's me. And I, sh I should have known better even going into that relationship. Um, so I, you know, I do think that there's, there's a long way to go for um, small to mid-sized firms that just aren't even doing anything. And they have just have no appreciation or really understanding of, you know, where they're putting themselves and their clients at risk. Yeah, and definitely when talking to like law schools, um, they'll agree that they're like peers, the faculty and the academics, they're not really well versed in technology and they're just like, they'll kind of just ignore it and just what we'll see maybe in like small and mid-sized firms not being aware of it. Um, from my talking to recently speaking to law schools, it sounds like the pandemic kind of forced them to acknowledge that technology does have a place and a role in the profession and um, someone that I spoke to for an article that I'll be talking about for this podcast, he mentioned specifically law firms going remote 
helped it um, help law school see like, okay, this is legitimate. Like, okay, we can really embrace this if we're seeing like the people that we're trying to get our law school graduates to um, find jobs in those firms that they're actually adopting it. So I think hopefully we'll see a change and just kind of saying like, we need to actually prepare our students for the realities of being like a 21st century um, attorney. I just, you know, something you just said just almost sets me off just because like what, how does a law school not fully appreciate this? So you're, you're a student and you signed up as a student, you have to uh, use a portal and encrypted sections to upload your financial documents and your records. Why aren't they holding the lawyers they're graduating to that same standard of um, confidentiality and security. And they're just not, it's just not part of the training or the appreciation. But I do think eventually, you know, um, consumers are going to be looking for the encryption, the cues, you know, why, why isn't this more secure? Um, I don't really want to, you know, what is it? I don't want to be um, sending you all this affidavit with all these really intense details about my about my family situation without, you know, some type of assurances that you're taking care of it. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think the whole conceit of law school is not necessarily that they teach you practical skills that you can actually use. It's more like, okay, we teach you a way to think. We teach you a way to approach certain fact patterns that may or may not occur when you become a lawyer uh, and, and, and how to analyze them and take them apart and, 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 and do that. Like, you don't, you don't look at contracts and contracts. You don't look at, you don't, you know, you don't, you don't, actually look at necessarily um, anything that, that that's relevant to your to, to your future like practice you know when you're in law school so I think you know it's one of those things where it's like you have you have to kind of say okay well we're gonna do it we're, we're, we're gonna teach tech tech competency but we're gonna do it at this stage and everyone has to agree to it because otherwise law schools will say well it's not our job to do it and then uh, you know it'll be it'll, it'll be for the bar exam the bar exam will be like well it's not our job to do it you know our, our, all we're doing is just testing a minimum a minimum level of competency in a, in a, in a wide range of of, of 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 areas of law. So it's not our area. It's not our job to do that. It's, it's a CLE's job. And the CLEs will be like, well, you know, um, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe it is our job, but maybe it's not. We, we're not going to require people to do this. We're not going to require people to do that. So, you know, it's one of the things where it's like you have to kind of figure out, okay, well, where would it help the most people? And I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe it would be on the bar exam because everyone has to take it, but I can tell you, I can tell you just, you know, after I took the bar exam, like I, I think I forgot like 90% of like, of everything that I studied for months and months. And that was pretty deliberate on my part. Cause I was just like, I don't want to deal with this again. So um, I don't know. I don't know if there is like a real good answer as to when you would, you would, you would introduce this kind of stuff. But I do think having a more tech, tech integrated curriculum in law school, just in general would help just because then, you know, it would just make people more cognizant of these kind of these kind of issues and, and and make them more used to just using the using using the technology and what kind of issues pop up when you use it. Because um, sometimes you just don't think about this kind of stuff. Like I mean, when I was in law school, we were still using books for research, and you know, you never thought about like, okay, well, uh, you know, what are what are you know what what happens if I go on you know if I search for a case on Westlaw and and and, and you know only only these deep you know it only returns these uh, top ones and, and it doesn't return this one. Then what happens? You know, so. So, so I do think that, that that there does need to be sort of like a rethinking of like how you integrate technology into into um, in, into you know how you introduce it or how you integrate it into people's into lawyers like uh, lives and their skill sets. But I don't really know necessarily know what where, where the, the best place to do it is. Yeah, I I, I think it, it has to be more organic overall in, throughout the uh, law school process. Um, you know, there was a. Uh, 
I don't even know if Dan Lena is still keeping up with. He he used to do the uh, Dan Lena, the law professor at uh, at Northwestern uh, Law, was doing that uh, innovation uh, chart where he's tracking uh, innovation in law firms and also tracking law schools that were doing innovative things around teaching and incorporating technology and that the, the uh, list of law schools he had on there never got very long out of the, what are they like 250 law schools or something like that, or 300 and something, I don't even know. But, uh, you know, I think he had a couple dozen at best law schools listed on there. And I'm sure I have to think the pandemic has maybe kind of uh, forced the hand for, for some law schools to get a little bit savvier about how they incorporate tech uh, into their curricula, which uh, actually happens to be what, what Victoria is going to talk about, I think, uh, in, in a minute, but I, I wonder to what extent that will maybe accelerate, you know, as we, as it has, as we've talked about it doing in other sectors of legal practice, but it also accelerate use of and teaching of tech um, in the law school environment. Well, one thing about that though, is the students have to, you have to convince them that there is some value to it. And in my experience right now, a lot of them have sort of drunk the Kool-Aid and don't think that tech matters for the practice of law. And I say this because I'm not going to mention law school, but there's a law school in upstate New York that um, had technology. So many, you can't classes. figure it out from that. Uh, I said, well, there's a few, but they were, um, the, the New York State Bar had a thing where they would teach tech classes. Um, Mark Berman, uh, who is um, on the tech committee for the bar, sort of was behind this. And he's super forward thinking about tech. And he, um, and he chaired the tech committee at the bar. And then he's, also involved in the bar in other ways, but he, we, there were classes that were in different law schools all across upstate New York and in the city. And he would get people to come and teach these classes from the community. So um, the executive director of the bar here locally and I taught at a couple of different, we went and spoke at some of these classes at the different schools. And some of the schools had a really hard time getting people enrolled in the classes. Like, I don't know, it's like the, the kids didn't think that it mattered sort of. Um, the kids, the students didn't think that necessarily mattered. And so there weren't a ton of students. Some of these classes had like six students and it was all about tech and the law and the intersection of tech and the law. And that tells me that there's an institutional problem practically or an industry problem related to tech where the kids, the, the students don't think it's important. The schools don't think it's important. Um, and no one thinks it's important until they suddenly get out and need to use tech. And then they realize it's important or if they want to start a practice, both practice how to run your practice and also tech. They don't teach any of this stuff. And so people just come out of school with no skills that are related to that or even just practical aspects of practice and law as well. Like what does a contract look like and how do you review a contract versus what are the cases that relate to contractual disputes, you know? Yeah. So is, is that a trickle know. down thing or a trickle up thing? Is it, is it that the firms don't care? Aren't, aren't the firms aren't putting the pressure on on schools to, to be teaching those skills or is it the schools aren't teaching them so the firms aren't looking for them? The vicious cycle. <laughs> well, so I, I have a question about a role for, so, you know, I, Catherine Sanders Reach and Adriana Linares work with, um, directly with bar associations to teach uh, as a member benefit of the associations, teach um, tech skills and do individual training and, and you know, larger trainings. I, I'm not seeing that at every bar association, but I really, I see that as a value, as a member benefit. And I can see that as a good place for this. Um, 
what for where law school you maybe you're not sure where you're going to be so you have you have to be somewhat general you know you maybe have this idea that you're going to be working for a government agency or a law firm and you don't have to ramp up with all this tech information and then suddenly you're solo and you have to know how to run your business and that's it you know that i would see as you know something that you would then um, take after law school to brush up on or to get the latest skills or you're transitioning from big law to a boutique practice and you need to um, suddenly know all the pieces that you've never had to pay attention to before. Um, it seems to me a bar association is a great place to have that benefit available. Yeah, Like the students are not going to go to a bar association unless they're pushed because it just seems like it's foreign to them. It, it, like the schools have to start this. And the problem is, how is a student going to know that tech matters when all they hear that is we need to talk about three British sailors eating each other, right? Like we're talking about cases that have little to no relevance to current stuff. They're not talking about how the practice of law operates. And I understand that doctrine and doctrinal teaching is important, but until there's a push by the schools that, hey, practice matters and you're going to be in a profession and we're also going to talk about how the profession works, why would they ever even know to think about technology? Maybe it has to be more of a push. I mean, I know I remember having a conversation with a dean at a law school that is um, has a reputation as being one that's progressive around teaching about technology and having programs around technology. Uh, but but that dean expressing the the um, frustration to an extent that so many students are so focused on getting that big firm, big money, you know, uh, New York or, or wherever job. Uh, and and they're, they don't want to spend time on what they see as sort of, they see them as ancillary. And it, I mean, this is in a school that's trying to create an environment where that's not viewed as ancillary, but the students are still seeing it as ancillary because that's, I think that's what they're seeing in terms of what the job market is, is looking for out of them, not so much what the school is looking for out of them. But. Yeah, that's what I think, like the universities, they're like any company, if they see demand, then they'll respond with it. Like they have to see either students that are saying like, I'm considering maybe going to this other law school because they have a tech program. I think that's gonna help me get a job or they need to hear from the local uh, job market from the law firm saying, we want our students, okay, maybe they don't have to know how to use relativity but they need to know how to encrypt email. They need to understand like, when do you hand off um, certain uh, types of matters or contracts, when do you hand that off to like a contract software, but no, but you understand like when you need to step in and oversee it and everything like that. So I think the law schools, they're just gonna wait until they get enough demand from it and just kind of like the people paying the tuition or the or um, from the employers that they're trying to put their students um, with. So I think it's kind of like that and just the law firms were starting to see that a little bit, but it might take a while. Uh, there's a question uh, from Rob Thomas uh, on, uh, which says to help clients evaluate a law firm's level of technology security, et cetera, maybe the state bar associations could require uniform disclosures by the firms annually so that clients can easily review their capabilities and compare firms. I mean, he's kind of suggesting uh, a, a sort of a uh, uh, legislating of what Dan Lennon was trying to do with his, uh, with his innovation index. What do you think? Could something like that fly? Could, could state bars require firms to... Uh, be uh, more transparent about their tech and security and all of that? Do the states even so require um, uniformly whether you have to have insurance for malpractice? 
Like I, I remember that was ages ago. I haven't looked it up in a long time, but I remember that being a big issue, whether they could uh, mandate, whether you could dis- you had to disclose that you had insurance. <laughs> so I don't, I don't see that happening. <laughs> right. If you don't even have to disclose you, you're not covered for malpractice. Right. Yeah. We do in Massachusetts. We have to disclose that. Is that something they could even mandate? I mean, because like I, I would, I would think that that would touch upon like a lot of confidentialities and a potential like, potential, yeah, like 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 they could probably just just claim that that that's confidential information, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess it, dep- it depends on what what you're asking for and like how you know how how you phrase it. It's always it's it's always devils in the details kind of thing. But yeah, yeah I would I would imagine that that any any time you're requiring firms to, cl- to disclose a certain amount of information, they would just they would just get. They would, they would just get very defensive about that. Yeah, I've wondered that. I mean, I've had some conversations with people who are looking to try and get firms to sort of more voluntarily kind of disclose information about their tech stacks. Uh, and uh, I just wonder whether firms would even, not even a confidentiality issue, more almost maybe a competitive issue or something, how much they want to actually kind of disclose about that. I think they, I think they would fight that, but... Well, you know, and as much as I appreciate disclosure, I think some of that could just be a roadmap for hackers too. So, you know, too too much (laughs) getting a little too specific with that. Right. Um, So one of the other outfalls of of, of the past year has been that law schools are doing more teaching online and that is looking at them, looking, that is causing them to look at other ways of uh, of uh, creating all of that content and producing it and sponsoring it. And Victoria, you've got some news on that front, as you alluded to earlier, but you can fill us in a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, during 2020, because of the pandemic, the ABA relaxed its rules about distance learning because of um, state mandates and um, health uh, concerns. And a lot of uh, law schools went um, remote or at least um, relied on being hybrid more often, more than they had in, um, previously. And I reached out to a few of those um, law schools and they said they kind of see more after having to be forced to go remote, they say that they saw kind of like efficiency gains and kind of like they can continue, they would consider continuing to have at least some remote courses for the law school program. And I thought it was interesting and of course, like the ABA um, so far hasn't accredited, accredited any um, online only JD program, but with going, if some law firms want to, I mean, law schools want to have like some more remote courses, it supposedly isn't very easy for them to do it themselves. They usually go to like a vendor, an online program manager. And I found out that these online program managers, they actually like some of their fee costs, they'll like uh, take a cut of a law school's tuition for a few years to pay for those services. And they'll just like set up the tech platforms, keep it update, updated, keep the um, faculty, like provide them with um, uh, guidance about how to use the program. And it'll also help them market like, okay, you have more courses and these types of courses available now. And it could, um, these contracts can take, um, can range from like five to seven years. And it's kind of interesting, and I just didn't know about that, that some of these law schools are willing to give up a cut of their tuition for a couple of years to help them go remote. And, you know, based off of like speaking to some law schools, they are considering adding more remote courses. And it's just kind of like, oh, I didn't know that you guys had to pay that much. Of course, these vendors, you can also pay like a fixed fee, which is like you have certain um, a la carte like services, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah, do you see that as as a transparency issue that the law schools should be 
disclosing their financial relationships uh, or the nature of their financial relationships with these vendors? It's interesting because some of the vendors that I spoke to, they list on like on their websites, their partners, and there will be some law schools listed and some press releases. I think for some people, at least for one vendor that I spoke to, he was just kind of like the transparency of how much is the vendor actually doing, especially when it comes to like the marketing. And the one vendor he mentioned, because they're, um, the market for online law schools is so low, and specifically for ABA accredited law school, online law schools, there's none. Like you don't have to do, spend so much on marketing, he was saying. So just kind of like, why are you charging these law schools so much? And we don't know how much work you actually need to do. We just kind of need to like, you know, put some ads out there that's like, oh, Harvard Law School has some um, online law, law classes or something like that. And just kind of like looking into that, he was saying like, are some of these vendors maybe like overcharging? And I just thought it was kind of interesting and just kind of like these law schools are part of like larger universities and uh, apparently they don't even have um, necessarily all the resource, resources they need to go remove. Interesting. Uh, any other thoughts on that? Before we move on to uh, Jordan. And, and I'm sure the solution is not to pass on the added cost to their students, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was asking, I did ask one of the vendors like, oh, do they charge a little bit less because it is remote? And they said, I've never heard of any law school um, decreasing the price of the tuition for online. It's just like, they don't ever have to go into a classroom. I just kind of, okay. Yeah. Um, Molly, you were uh, interested this week in uh, in the piece Jordan Furlong wrote on uh, uh, his magnum opus, I guess, on, on uh, regulation or deregulation or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, so the regulation revolution, uh, he, he published at the end of last week, and I, I was thinking of segues from every single one of your topics I know, today, well, yeah. uh, because it, hit, it, it covers all of this, um, and he breaks down, it's kind of an overview of where tech-driven, mostly tech-driven regulation um, is headed these days, but it, there are a lot of kind of political aspects to it too and it really kind of covers all of this and then um and his argument is that you know these a lot of these things were in the works uh, well before the pandemic and then just accelerated um by the pandemic um but he really breaks it down into four areas of you know the regulation related to um the business of of lawyers uh regulation uh related to the uh, market uh opening up the legal market um, and what I like to think of as the rise of the non-lawyer um, service, legal service provider. Uh, and then um, he goes into the uh, um, regulation of bar uh, um, exams and um, education. And then, uh, and that comes into that. He, one of my favorite parts of that was really his calling out that what we're gonna hear a lot more of is what um, competency means. Um, because of uh, especially California and New York uh, looking at re-evaluating their bar exam process in New York in particular, looking at apprenticeship. Um, so, you know, really getting to the, to down to what it means to be competent uh, once you are licensed to practice or once you are given a license um, is going to be kind of play a more important role. And that doesn't relate to tech competencies. That's down to what Joe was talking about earlier with, you know, the practice of law. Um, and what does that mean? You know, are we only focused on things that happened um, 200 plus years ago, or are we um, focused on, you know, what it is that it takes to practice law in modern day? Um, and then the, 
the final area is the uh, regulation of the of the bars themselves and really focus on California's split um, into two uh, mandatory or the regulatory bar, the what is it, the State Bar of California and then California Lawyers Association, which looks like it's um, something similar is going to be happening in Texas soon, um, or at least there's a push uh, because of a recent decision in the lower courts. Um, and lit, um, litigation is happening across the country in, um, I think, almost every other mandatory bar state. So that's a snapshot. <laughs> um, I think what hits me every single time is, you know, we focus a lot on um, Arizona really opening up to um, non-lawyer ownership and the, the um, progressive sandbox in Utah. Um, but really what's flying under the radar are the number of states that are either already licensing paraprofessionals or very close to licensing paraprofessionals. So several states already are really either um, building on some limited licensing or vastly expanding the role of paralegals to provide uh, legal services. And uh, uh, one of the things that he said is um, for lawyers to stop fighting um, this move and instead just start hiring the paraprofessionals uh, into your firms and or organizations. Yeah. And it's interesting that that's actually been going on for, I think, a lot longer than people realize. I mean, way back when you were at the ABA Journal, uh, I, I wrote a piece for you on the Triple LT program in uh, Washington. And even then, New York already had um, the uh, had a program, I forget what they're calling them, the, the court, uh, court navigators, navigate court navigators. Thank you. Arizona already had a program. Utah already had a program for non-lawyers doing this. So, I mean, this has been going on for a while and the sky hasn't fallen. And in fact, uh, a lot of them have proven to be very successful, except for the Washington one. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Well, I, yeah, go ahead. And he points out that Washington has shifted gears there. They've had another um, report come out in June saying we need to go back and, um, and look at and not um, be quite as complex as the the first program they they offered and and look at licensing paraprofessionals. Yeah, Washington's was just too top heavy, and I think it kind of collapsed of its own weight. Um, now it's it's a great piece. You know, Jordan has a a, a really uh, remarkable way, I think, of uh, of ability to take take things and synthesize them uh, and and put them in terms that make you really understand what's going on and. Uh, uh, you know, the key, the key phrase in, in his article might just be the two words turning point, uh, tipping point rather that we are, you know, uh, no matter whether you're for or against this stuff, there's really kind of no denying the fact that uh, this kind of reform is going to continue along uh, this path. Uh, we're not turning back just as we're not just as we're not turning back from some of the changes that happened because of COVID. And uh, Although it's, you know, maybe in some ways we're still just seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's going to eventually come about. Um, that's, the, that's the way we're headed for sure. You know, is there something else that I think is happening here, which is that the, the legal services uh, marketplace is expanding whether lawyers are on board or not. Uh, so it's, and, and futurists have been saying that for a long time, but we're now seeing that happen. Um, and you know, there's some issues with that where lawyers are regulated more heavily than the, than the service providers and there's going to be some advertising marketing restrictions that are just completely unfair for, have been unfair probably for lawyers for a long time and now are completely unfair. They're anti-competitive. Um, 
So those are going to have to be addressed. But really, um, I, I was listening to some sessions from the National Conference of Bar Presidents and uh, Dino Hamonis and uh, Bridget McCormick from Utah and uh, uh, Michigan were talking about about this kind of the public push and the bar push and the bar resistance. The you know rank and file bar members are the ones that are most opposed um, and fail to see the opportunity. Um, but the public sees the opportunity, um, but they have really not a lot of power. But now they're going to have power with um, not really pressing. I think they have power because it's a fairness justice issue, <laughs> and the Supreme Court what if they have to make decisions on these, I, it's just doesn't make sense for them to um, be protectionist, mm -hmm. uh, but that's still a really slow roll <laughs> towards these um, changes. So I, I think that it'll be really interesting to see, um, you know, how that the power of the marketplace plays out with um, with people just choosing LegalZoom or, you know, other services over over um, traditional lawyers. Yeah, and it's not just on the consumer level. I mean, this is you know, I think ALSPs are a great example of how the market is driving changes in the way legal services are delivered. And those changes are going to happen pretty much regardless of what the regulations say. I mean, in a lot of ways, ALSPs are just a, a, a kind of a, a careful dance around lawyer regulation. I mean, you know, a lot of those, they, they, they're, they're privately owned organizations that are, that are, for all intents and purposes, delivering legal services, uh, only they couch it in a way that somehow makes people think they're not delivering legal services. I don't even know how they do it. Uh, hey, hey if, if lobbyists can lobby without being called lobbyists, I mean, I guess we can do that too. <clears throat> I mean, you do, you are a real lobbyist. I'm saying that the, uh, I'm just making fun of yeah, like I have, the, to, I have to pay for it too, for the privilege. <laughs> so I, I once wrote a story about like Newt Gingrich lobbying, which he was lobbying and everybody knows that's what lobbying is, whatever. And I got a nasty email from his people like, Technically, what we did is not called lobbying because we aren't registered. And I was like, all right, advisor, sure. a special advisor, I think, right? Or something like that. Yeah, you, you're an advisor who told people yeah. to vote for certain bills. Okay. Um, but the point is, legally, that may not be lobbying, but like, hmm? so again, legal zoom, not a law firm. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Right. I mean, a, a big change over the last, um, yeah, again, back, Molly, when you were at the AB Journal, I wrote a couple of articles about legal zoom, and I'm just thinking about how, I mean, just, that's when there was still a lot of litigation around that. And there was a lot of stuff going on. And, and it's like the regulatory bodies have kind of just given up, haven't they? I mean, is anybody getting prosecuted for any of these things anymore other than, uh, well, you know? Isn't that what happened with AVO too? It's just like, just yeah. kind of just gave up, stopped fighting it. Yeah. So, And the only complaints, they weren't from consumers. They were from lawyers. And um, right. so. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, and thing... legitimately, some of the complaints are, this is anti if I can't do this, why can you do this? So, and I still think that's an issue. That's going to be an issue for lawyers. Yeah. Well, but and I think one partner. thing that sort of I was thinking about as you guys were talking about this was that sort of harkens back to what Molly had said about her experience with her own lawyer. I recently had a similar experience. So, and it was, uh, it's sort of appalling. I've seen Carolyn Elephant write about it too. Like when we're, over here trying to tell lawyers, here's what legal clients need. Here's how modern legal consumers want to interact with a lawyer, how they want to pay, how they want to communicate. And you need to have security and communication. And then you retain the services of a lawyer that someone recommends in a specific area. And you're like, well, I'll go there because this person I trust recommended them. And then you're, it's like appalling. It's like 
a complete lack of communication. Um, just in, in my experience, it seemed to be flat fee billing, but apparently it wasn't flat fee billing. I felt like they're getting like both sides of the um, coin, if you will. Like we're going to charge a ridiculous amount over my hourly rate for this flat fee. And then we're going to charge all this extra stuff on the other side. And they're making way more money than they would have. The whole point of flat fee billing is predictability. It like defeats the whole purpose. There's no predictability for the user, for the customer client. And then, you know, they're making money on both ends of the thing. It's just, it, it's really frustrating when you start interacting with lawyers that are not doing anything modern or they think they're doing it modern but don't even understand what it is, you know? And, it, and when people use LegalZoom and when they use um, Rocket Lawyer, it's a modern interface that they can access anytime, day or night. And a lot of firms aren't using those tools. I mean, practice management software, yes, I'm with a company and we provide that. But at the end of the day, legal consumers want that. And if they're not getting it, it can be really frustrating and they're gonna go somewhere else where they're gonna get it, even if it means it's not from a lawyer and it's from LegalZoom instead. So it's frustrating. They're not Lawyers in order to compete really need to modernize their practices. That's what I'm saying. But, but did that law firm know how to encrypt email? That's all I wanna know. No, and they had like <laughs> share file or something, but they didn't even tell me about it. And so there's definitely no email encryption. It was not secure communication. And at one point, like vital data, like that could be used to identify me was just sent through unencrypted email. And it's so frustrating. I'm like, what is wrong with you? It was to actually redact something from a document, but they sent it to me unredacted. I, I, I mean, I can't even tell you. There's just, it's frustrating. And when you're, and this is like a larger firm, all things considered. So, right. and you're a savvy consumer of legal services on top of it. So imagine, imagine people who are less familiar with the legal system trying to figure this all out. Yeah, and that's why I think where all that competition comes from, and lawyers don't even get it. It's, yeah. it's because they're not providing services the way that the consumer wants them to provide it. And the consumer is yeah. going where they're going to get that and get it at a much more reasonable price. Yep. So. All right. Anybody, anything else? Uh, any any uh, rants or raves or good of the order or anything else anybody want to bring up before we wrap up today? I thought Nikki's was a pretty good closing rant. So. Yeah. All right. So um, you're gonna leave with my anger driving the closing <laughs> of this. Okay. All right. No, it's 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 well well uh, well pointed, well directed anger. I mean, it's it's uh, deserved anger. So. All right. Well, uh, thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the panelists for participating. And we will be back again next week, I hope, uh, with another session of, of the Legal Tech Roundtable. So look for us then. See you all then. Bye. 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 Bye.